Okay, brothers and sisters, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for our scripture reading. I hate to cut our, you know, fellowship time short there. I know that's, um, uh, if you're visiting here with us and you're like, why do these people like love each other and talk to each other so much? Um, that's, uh, that's just kind of how we are. And so I appreciate, um, I appreciate that very much. Um, and I hate to break that up, but I've been really just excited to get to God's word today and for the teaching this morning. And um, so if you would turn for, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. Will be our scripture reading. And by way of reminder for those who were here last week, and if, uh, for those who are uh, just visiting with us today, we are going to be doing a, a very short series on the means of grace. And uh, we've looked at this, uh, the means of grace of God's word. We looked at the means of grace of baptism several weeks ago. Today we're looking at the means by which God communicates his grace to us in the Lord's Supper, and we looked at it in the basics last week. Today, we're looking at one particular question, and that question is, how, how is Christ present with us in the Lord's Supper? But before we get to that, let's read our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22, if you will follow along. The Apostle Paul, writing to the saints at Corinth, he says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank from the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Therefore, let uh, no temptation has allowed, oh, oh, excuse me, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is common to man, but is, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, we having heard your word, we ask now in these moments that the word of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as I mentioned, we are in a series here on the Lord's Supper And we looked at kind of the basics of the Lord's Supper last week, and we saw the institution of the Lord's Supper and how it uh, was a celebration, was Jesus' reconfiguring of the the Jewish Passover and applying it to him as if the Passover was kind of a, a picture and an image, was the shadow, but the substance was Christ in himself. And as he was with his disciples, he said, and he gave them in the upper room, he He broke the bread and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body. And then he gave them the cup of wine there and he says, this is my blood in the new covenant. We looked at the basics last week. I wanted to focus today, however, on that one question that comes to many people's minds. Jesus promises that he is present here with his people when they take the Lord's Supper. The question is, how? How is Jesus Christ present in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper? That I want to address this morning, and we're going to do it in in four parts. Okay, there's going to be four parts. So let me kind of give you the four parts here in advance so you know where we're going. There's going to, we'll be looking at the presence of Christ, and in particular, the passage that we're looking at uh, that we just read. And so this is kind of the exegetical section where we're looking at the passage and we're going to find out what is what is the passage meaning here for those uh, you know theology nerds and stuff you might be really appreciate this message and how diverse this is here we're going to be lo- doing the exegetical and then we're going to be looking at four views that attempt to answer that question how is christ present in the lord's supper and this is kind of the the more theological and then we're going to look at the hypostatic union and this is we're going to be going a little historical we're going to go do some church history I bemoan how little church history actually occurs in in many sermons. And so we're going to do that this morning. And then we'll wrap it up with our application, the practical and the devotional. So now you know the lay of the land. You've got the map. Now you know where we're going to go. So let's begin with the first one, the presence of Christ. Chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians is usually the passage that's associated with the Lord's Supper. It's the one that we recite every week before we take the Lord's Supper. It's Paul's version of the institution of the Lord's Supper. 
But the Lord's Supper is also a, a topic and a part of the argument that he uses in the previous chapter, the chapter that we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There he is dealing with the Corinthians and a, a couple of problems that the Corinthians were engaged in, namely idolatry and sexual immorality or sexual sin. This, the, kind of the backdrop of what's happening here is that Paul is getting word that the Corinthian believers, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, um, in a very Greek city, kind of second only to Athens as the main kind of theological pagan center of worship, they were continuing to go and participate in the pagan temples. And so the Apostle Paul has to, has to address this issue with them. And he says, no, you can't, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can see this in a, in a couple places at the beginning verses. Notice verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it was written. Meaning, the, the second commandment of the Ten Commandments that we looked at recently in our series. He's saying, you can't, you can't commit idolatry as, as Christians. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. This is the, the seventh commandment. Can't, you can't do that either. And there's usually an association between the two because there was kind of temple prostitution that would take place in these uh, pagan temples that were associated with that worship. Notice verse 9. We must not put the Lord, Christ the Lord, to the test. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, repeating the second commandment again. So this is all connected to their participation in the pagan temple worship system in Corinth. And Paul's command to them is that this is not an indifferent thing. This is not an indifferent thing for Christians. He's saying, no, you cannot break that, those commands of God. Now, what's, apparently some of them go, yes, we have freedom. We have freedom to do these kinds of things in Christ. And Paul says, not in this you don't. Not in this you don't. Later in the chapter, in the pastor, passage that we did not read, verses 23 through 30, he's dealing with issues that are matters of indifference. So like, well, what do you do about meat that was maybe offered in the temple, but then was sold in the marketplace. Can you eat that? And he says, you know, he gives advice on like a matters of wisdom and how to deal with the conscience of other persons. And he says, those are matters of wisdom. Those are some things that I have some suggestions on. But that's a different matter. That's a different matter than actually going to the pagan temple and feasting and participating in the meals themselves. So notice the, the um, emphasis there in verse 16. Okay, there's three meals that are really in mind here, three participations here. And he uses this example, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So notice the cup of blessing, clearly a reference to the, the, the wine that was offered in the Lord's Supper, which Christ says, this is my blood. And then the bread that we break is a reference to the, the, the breaking of the bread and the uh, body of Jesus Christ, 
These are references to the Lord's Supper, the elements of the Lord's Supper. Do you see that? And so he makes reference here, an allusion to the Lord's Supper, and he says, and then he drives home this point, and it's almost like in passing because he's using it as an argument for why you should not participate in idolatry. But he wants them to remind them of this point. And here's the point. When you participate in those things, you are actually communing with the object of those things. Notice the words there, the word participation in the ESV. Anybody have another translation? Just another translation for what it says there. Sharers is one. Any others? Let me give you the Greek word there. The Greek word there is koinonia. You've probably heard this. Oh, koinonia, that's fellowship. The root uh, word for koinonia is common. It describes the early church and their fellowship. It's, uh, they had everything in common. And this is where we get the word communion is one of the titles for the Lord's Supper. Because when you take the Lord's Supper, is what the Apostle Paul is saying, is that you are in koinonia, with the blood of Christ. You take the cup, but it's actually koinonia, union, communion with the blood of Christ. When you break that bread and you eat the bread, you are in koinonia, communion with the body of Christ. So that's the point I want to stress here. Partaking in the Lord's Supper is really and truly participation in and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And this point is further drilled home because of how he's applying it in two other ways. And here's the other ways here. Notice verse 18. He applies it. He says he uses the analogy of like Israel and their sacrifices in the temple, according to Leviticus. And then he also makes an illustration from the pagan temple worship system. Notice verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices, and then he uses this word again, participants. It's a, it's a variation of the term, but it's koinonas, but it's the, it's the same idea. When Israel was offering the sacrifices, and we talked about this last week, the third of the five major sacrifices in Leviticus was the, what do they call it? The fellowship offering. They actually would eat it. A portion was burned for the Lord, and then they, they would cook the other portion, and they would consume it. And it was to say, that was the picture. When we share this food together, we're in communion together. We're united together. And Paul's using that. He goes, yeah, when you take this, it's the, just like when Israel did. And then he uses another example for the pagan temple worship systems. The Corinthians, they, they thought that if they could, when they come to faith in Jesus Christ, they can live like they always did. They could participate in the pagan rituals with impunity because they would say, you know, well, Paul taught us there really is only one God. And then Paul is addressing that. And he's like, no, 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 no. You just same way with the Lord's Supper. You are communing with Christ. That's his main point. Just like Israel, when they would offer sacrifices at the altar, they were communing with the altar. They're probably being a stand in here for for the Lord. He says the same is true for the pagan temples. Verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Now here he's saying, of course there is no Apollo there. Because there is no Apollo. There is no Zeus there. 
There's no Aphrodite there. There's no Demeter there. There's no Artemis there. Okay, right? He's saying, yes, of course. I, I know that there, it's not like Yahweh's battling with Zeus. There is no Zeus, right? But what does he say in verse 20? He goes, am I implying that if, the, if it is an idol, anything? He goes, no, no. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And he says, when you're going to those places to offer those sacrifices in those pagan temples, he goes, this is not a, you know, it's just not a, like a sinful thing that you're doing. It's not something that you probably shouldn't be doing. He says, when you do it, you are in communion with demons. It's right there. It's the next verse. He uses that koinonia term again, koinonos. I do not want you to be koinonos with demons. Paul clearly makes the connection. You engage in the, pa the pagan ceremony, there's a real presence of demons in it. There's real demons there. And so eating and drinking in the pagan temple is participation with demons. So kind of looking at his whole argument, he goes, if Israel eating food offered at the altar is participation in the altar, and pagans eating food offered at idols is participation with demons, Notice the point that he's using to make all this. Christian communion it, at the Lord's Supper is communion with Christ. Hence the strong warning in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Because to do so would provoke the Lord to jealousy. So, here, so there's the summary. You got the main point. Here, here's the main point. When we come together to the table, this is not an empty ritual. When we come to the Lord's table, this is not a bare memorial. It is communing with the one who is associated with these. Partaking of the Lord's Supper is participating in fellowship and communion with the real Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's the exegetical. Now to our question, how? Okay, I'm convinced. Jesus is really here. How, though? And so now we're going to get to the theological. And there's been four views that attempt to answer this. And let me just kind of survey these four views to kind of set the table here really uh, briefly. The first one is what's called transubstantiation. I won't make you say it. Transubstantiation. And you could break that, and you kind of get the meaning there if you break it up. Substance. You see the word substance there? Okay, the substance of Christ. And then the trans, that's probably very familiar now in our day, is to change. Okay? So the substance of the bread and wine changes into the body and blood of Christ. This is the answer that Rome gives or Catholicism gives. When the priest offers the Eucharistic words in the, the mass and he holds the bread up, they believe, and it's several places in, in the uh, Catholic catechism. You can look these up. I could give you some of the references. They say that when that is offered, they, that, that bread and that cup, become the body and blood of Christ. 
the actual body and blood of Christ. Several places. And then in this way, they say that, that Christ is offered again on the altar. It's kind of a, a re-sacrifice. And then they kind of say this, and here's a quote. And this is from the Council of Trent. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once on a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner here. That said, they still, they still say that that body and blood changed, its substance changed into the actual physical body of Christ and the actual physical blood of Christ. They say, now it might look like it on the outside. They would call it the accidents, but the substance is actually Christ, okay? Now in the Reformation, they would reject this idea. And as a matter of fact, Martin Luther um, rejected this mass perspective on, on how Christ is present there. Um, uh, uh, but, but he'd offered what he called the real presence of Christ, but it's there kind of by mystery. They would speak of Christ being in, with, and under the bread. And that it's not done like, you know, that because of the, the magical words of the priest given in the thing, but Christ really and truly is present there. And so notice the con substantiation. Con here would be with. The substance is, is with it. The real, the real physical presence of Jesus is really there. So it's, it's similar to the transubstantiation, but they just say, no, it's, it's in and it's with and it's under. And it's kind of a mystery. Well, following from Martin Luther, there was another guy named Ulrich Zwingli who was very influential among, um, uh, he ended up becoming pretty influential among the Anabaptists and Mennonite and the Amish. Uh, he differed from them in many ways. But he basically, his approach to the Lord's Supper is that this is just a memory. It's a memorial. They, they basically substituted the word for this is my body, this is my blood. He, he substituted the word signified. So Jesus was really saying, this signifies my body and this signifies my blood. And basically, it was little more than the believer, kind of their pious commemoration of the work of Christ. Looking back, they're participating in this through an act of faith. And so he was really, I thought this was interesting, I learned this week. He was the first former reformer to actually move away from the weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper. Up until this point, it was, it was celebrated weekly. But ultimately, he would say Christ is, the, the resurrected physical Christ is not really present in it. And these guys would debate, Luther and Zwingli and Calvin, they would debate about this. And Calvin referred to Zwingli's views as these are empty symbols or empty promises. So that brings us to the fourth one, John Calvin, who refers to the spiritual presence of Christ. Now, all three of those would reject the, uh, excuse me, the two previous ones, Luther and Zwingli would have rejected kind of the, the Catholic or Popish mass and Calvin here is trying to kind of navigate in between Luther and Zwingli. Calvin's reading of the scripture is, it's not a bare memorial, um, but Christ is there, but he's there spiritually. 
Christ is really present, but he's there spiritually. So what's the distinction here? How, would you, how can we help us think through the distinction between Luther and Calvin on this? And this gets us to part three here, uh, the, the church history part. And I'll, for your handout here, you could put hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. What does that mean? Let me explain to you. If I could uh, take you back into church history. Uh, so this is part of why I was kind of excited this morning to do the sermon, because I felt like, oh, I get to be a history professor today. Does that, does that shock many of you? Probably not. Okay. Um, so if we were to take a time machine, get into a time machine, go back to the mid, uh, the mid uh, 5th century, the 400s, what had been taking place is in terms of the debates around the doctrine of the church. Let, the, the previous century, kind of the main issue was the, this question. How can one nature, the divine nature, exist in three persons? That was the kind of the question, right? Because the, uh, the early Christians would read, they go, well, it's surely, clearly that God the Father is God. And there's many passages in the scripture that clearly indicate that Jesus, the Son, is God. Um, and so in what way do they share that nature? How is the oneness of God distributed among those two? And then furthermore, the many passages of scripture that speak about the Holy Spirit as God. So that was kind of the question. If you could summarize it in a real simplistic way for you. The question was, how, how can one nature be in three persons? And this was ironed out. So we would refer to as uh, the, the Council of Nicaea we've talked about. Now answer the question, one nature that eternally exists in three separate and equal persons. So you don't want to confuse the persons and those kinds of things. So that was the first question. About a century earlier, that was those questions. Then it kind of shifted a little bit to not from how one nature can be in three persons, but how can one person have two natures? How can one person have two natures? So... Sure, Jesus is God, but then what happened to his humanity? And this is the question that they were trying to sort out. Jesus was fully God, and yet he was fully man. And this is the one that was causing us some debate. I remember is what, what came to my mind as I was thinking about this this week was a, um, a certain beer commercial, series of beer commercials when I was a kid. And the big debate was... Um, that as these people are partake, partaking of this, this beer, one side was saying, it, it tastes great, but it's a light beer. And so others were saying, yeah, but it's less filling. I'm dating myself totally here, aren't I? There's some, some people here who might remember this commercial. And so they would it turn into a big debate and yelling at each other, tastes great, less filling, tastes great, less filling. I, I knew it was a risky illustration. Um, <laughs> But let me just kind of say, if you can kind of get that in your mind, uh, with this kind of thing, two natures, one person, two natures, one person, two natures, one person. So this is going to get to the issue here. First, let me introduce you to a guy named Nestorius or Nestorianism. This is what I want you to know. He basically believed Jesus was God, but he denied the unity of the two natures into one person. So in other words, Nestorius was emphasizing the distinction of the two natures. 
that Jesus Christ did have a divine nature, but that Jesus Christ had a human nature. And he was very concerned that we not lose the human nature because it's as to Jesus's humanity that he connects with us in our salvation, right? So that was his emphasis. So, um, so he was emphasizing it, and perhaps there's some debate whether he actually held this, but his view or the view that um, tended toward emphasizing two persons, that there was almost like a divine Christ and a human Jesus. And that view was the one that was actually uh, condemned at a council about 20 years earlier, about 431 at the Council of Ephesus. He wanted to emphasize that Jesus really was truly human. He had a human body. He had a human will. He had a human nature. But the error tended toward two distinct persons, not just two natures, but two, two persons, the human Jesus and kind of the divine Christ. One, one historian says the emphasis of the two natures of Christ in a way that tended to make his huma humanity a distinct individuality over against the divine nature. So Nestorius and Nestorian, or his followers, or those who would hold to this, were emphasizing two natures, two natures. But it gave the impression of, or tended toward two persons. So that's the first one. And I put this in blue to help you to uh, think uh, clearly distinguished between this one and the next one, and that's Eutyches, or Eutychianism, which denies the distinction of the two natures in one person. Okay, are you tracking here? So he was emphasizing that there really is one person, and by implication, there really was only one nature. And it's not so much they were picking the divine one over the human one, rather the divine nature and the human nature merge and to kind of create a third kind of God-man nature. And one of the illustrations that's, that was given is, is the humanity of Jesus is like a drop of wine in the sea of his divinity. So they're like, well, it's kind of, it's still there, but it's been absorbed by the divine nature of Christ. One historian says Jesus Christ was a, a hybrid of a humanity and divinity, a single divine human nature that mixed together and mingled the two natures. That's what you want to get, is that mingled the two natures so that the human nature was basically overwhelmed and swallowed up by the divine. So they were the one person Thing, but the error tended toward one nature. And thus an essential denial of any human nature of Jesus at all. So what was interesting is where this kind of, uh, where these debates really kind of started was there was uh, a statement about Mary that Nestorius heard that Mary was referred to as Theotokos. Theotokos which means that the child bearer of God. And when he heard that, he was like, oh no, I gotta, maybe that's not the right term because Mary was a human person who had flesh and blood and Jesus Christ was a, a, was a truly human. He had a human nature, flesh and blood. Did she really give birth to God? He's not denying that Jesus was fully God, but, but he's like, I just don't like that term. And so he preferred Christotokos, child bearer of the Christ. 
Well, to this, the Eutychians were like, no, 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 now you're, now you're creating two different, two different persons. So the resolution of this comes together, and this is a very important one, a very important, this fourth ecumenical council. So just let me summarize. There's Nestorius, two natures. There's Eutyches, one person. And Nestorius' error was it tended toward two persons. Eutyches' error was it tended toward one nature. So now let's go to a church council as, the, as church leaders from all over are brought together in 451 and known as the Council of Chalcedon who came to the definition of Chalcedon. Hope I'm not losing you here. Um, but this is a very important one. The Nestorians were concerned with protecting the truth of the two natures, but uh, this council was uh, to hopefully protect the truth of the concern of the Nestorians of the two natures, but reject the error of the two persons. And it also wanted to protect the truth of Eutychian concerns of one person, but reject its errors of a divine human hybrid nature. And so Nestorius is going to be in the blue, and Eutyches, two natures, is going to be in the blue, one person. So let me read to you the definition of Chalcedon, okay? Following the Holy Fathers, we teach with one voice that the Son and our Lord Jesus Christ is to be confessed as one and the same Son, okay? This is the one person concern. Yes. They were reading that line. They were like, yeah, take that, Nestorius. That he is perfect in Godhead, that's divine nature, and perfect in manhood, his human nature. Yeah, so this is the, the two natures concern, right? And very man, a very God and very man of a reasonable soul and body consisting. I mean, he really is like us. That the true mediator between God and man really is man. They were like, yes. Notice it continues. See how it bounces back and forth. And the next it says, uh, consubstantial, and that's a term that's drawn from the previous council uh, of Nicaea, uh, of the same substance with the Father. Jesus has the same substance with the Father as touching his Godhead, divine nature, and consubstantial, same substance with us as touching his manhood and his human nature right they're saying we're putting the two together this is where the mystery really is next made in all things like unto us nestorius and the two natures are going yes like us sin only accepted they were like we're cool with that begotten of his father before the worlds according to his godhead but in these last days for us men and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. They use Theotokos. They use the term that Nestorius rejects. But Eutyches and those preferred. Okay. All right. Okay. Yes, he's made unto us all things. Born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to his manhood or human nature. This one and the same Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, there you go, one person, must be confessed to be in two natures, unconfusedly, unconfusedly and immutably. Yes. And then indivisibly and inseparably. 
and without distinction of the natures being taken away by such union. That's a key one. The distinction of the natures are not taken away by that there are, you have two natures in one person, but rather the peculiar property of each nature, nature being preserved. And, okay, now back to the other concern, united in one person and subsistence, not separated or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten God, the Word, our Lord Jesus Christ as of the prophets of old, of old time has spoken concerning him and as the Lord Jesus Christ had taught us as the creed of our fathers had delivered him to us. You see, Chalcedon, have you ever thought, like how does that work together? The divine nature and the human nature together in one person, well, it's a mystery. But they say this is, these are kind of like, they put up kind of four boundary walls to say, this, you, we're protecting that mystery, and you don't dare cross over, transgress those, because you, all you're transgressing over into is heresy. So this is Chalcedonian theology. It's lamentable that many Christians today don't understand, if I say the word Chalcedon, they would be like, that's a foreign thing to us. But it's so important, because it's protecting the hypostatic union of two natures in one person. We don't divide the one person, Jesus, into two persons. Neither do we confuse the two natures of Jesus into one nature. We maintain two natures in one person. Okay? Amen. Okay? Because you think about this. You think Jesus has said both things. He said, I am going away. I am going to the Father. You will see me no longer. And it's good that I go away because if I don't go away, then the Holy Spirit, I can't send the Holy Spirit to you. Right? So there's a sense in which Jesus really does leave us. But at the same time, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. And at the end, he says, uh, at the end of Matthew, he says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said both things. Well, how are we to understand that? Well, the framework of Chalcedon. So let me give you another uh, helpful framework from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 46 was dealing with the ascension of Jesus Christ. And then question 47, great question. Is not Christ then with us even to the end of the world as he has promised? How many of you grew up memorizing these questions? Heidelberg. And the answer is great. It's beautiful. Christ is very man and very God. With respect to his human nature, he is no more on earth. But with respect to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. What, if you were looking at this now, you'd go, oh, that's Chalcedon. That's exactly what it is. Question 48. Okay, but if, so they're thinking through, but if his human nature is not present with us, wherever his God has, is, are, are not then those two natures in Christ separated from one another? The answer is not at all. For since the Godhead is illimitable and omnipresent, it must necessarily follow that the same is beyond the limits of the human nature he assumed. And yet he is nevertheless in his human nature and remains personally united to it. It's beautiful, isn't it? You were to take this Chalcedonian framework, or as it's asked here in the, the Heidelberg Catechism, the physical resurrected Jesus, but he really had a body, guys. Remember, I'm not a ghost. Touch me, touch my, touch me. Put, put your finger in my side. 
And he ate some food, right? Like they cooked some food and he ate. He goes, you guys hungry around here? You got some food? And they gave him some food. It didn't just fall out. Like he had, he had a stomach. He had all of it. And it's that body, that physical body that ascended into heaven. They were watching it. It goes up and up and up until it disappears behind the clouds. And the, the angels, as they're going, hey, guys, why are you sitting around here looking at, like, why, why, why are you looking at him? He said he's going to go. He goes, and he's going to come back the same way. He's going to have that physical body. And indeed, many places in the scripture says he is physically seated at the right hand of the majesty on heaven. That's beyond kind of how we can picture it. But they, we would believe that, yes, he is. He didn't kind of vaporize or turn into a ghost or something. He still has the physical body according to our human nature. He is acting as our high priest in the heavenly places right now. Okay. So the phys- as to his human nature, Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But as to his divine nature, he can now be everywhere present and even promise to be present in the meal that he's given us. And so this is Chalcedonian theology. So let, let, let's get to our application of this then. So why do I say all this? How does this apply? You see how this applies to communion now, right? Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper for how Jesus is here, we begin with what we did in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. When we partake of these elements as we gather together as a church and they're broken here in the name of Christ, you are communicating, you are participating with the Lord Jesus Christ. The physical body of Christ according to his manhood is seated at the right hand of the Father. But the spiritual presence of Christ, his divine nature is present in the Lord's Supper. So we don't dare speak of, well, we're taking the Lord's Supper, that we're communicating with the Son of God, but the Jesus. No, no, no. We're communicating with the one person, Jesus Christ. But as to his physical nature, he's in, in heaven, it's human nature. But as to his spiritual, divine nature, he's spiritually present with us. Okay. We can speak of the spiritual presence of the one person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is present as to his divine nature by the Holy Spirit. But in communicating with the divine nature by the Holy Spirit, we still are communicating with the one person, still the same person that is not united to his human nature. So I say this, I, t- I typically don't think I have to worry about that many of you would take a Roman Catholic approach. And I don't think there's any transubstantiationists in here. And, and I don't think that many of you come to the Lord's table with kind of a Lutheran approach, uh, not that there would be anything wrong with that. You'd see kind of a very similarity. The Lutherans would say, no, Christ is physically here, uh, but in a mysterious way. But Calvin is saying, well, he is here, but you have to understand the divine human natures. And I don't, I don't know that many of you would take the consubstantiation approach. Here's my main concern, is that we would take a Zwinglian approach. It's the approach I grew up with. And that this is just a memory. That this is just something, it's an act of remembrance on our part. That we're remembering the work uh, of Jesus' death, but that he isn't really present here. Now, of course, it involves remembering. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. 
But brothers and sisters, what we celebrate is more than a memory. It's more than a memorial. We celebrate the real spiritual presence of Christ in the bread and wine who is present to us by faith. When you take communion, you are participating in Christ. He nourishes us with himself. Isn't that amazing? So let me close by reading to you from John Calvin's kind of summary here. And it's a couple of slides, but bear with me. To summarize, our souls are fed by the flesh and blood of Christ in the same way that bread and wine keep and sustain physical life. For the analogy of the sign applies only if the souls find their nourishment in Christ, which cannot happen unless Christ truly grows into one with us and refreshes us by eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood. We're going to get to this next week in terms of the importance that that only believers take this. But he goes on. Even though it seems unbelievable, or excuse me, even though it seems unbelievable that Christ's flesh separated from us by such great distance penetrates to us so that it becomes our food, lest us remember how far the secret power of the Holy Spirit towers above all our senses. And how foolish it is to wish to measure his immeasurableness by our measure. What then our mind does not comprehend, let faith conceive that the spirit truly unites things separated by space. Our physical bodies are separated from the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's saying, but by the Spirit of God and His spiritual presence with us, the Holy Spirit truly does unite that. It closes that gap by communing with the divine nature of Christ. Now the sacred partaking of His flesh and blood by which Christ pours His life into us as if it penetrated into our bones and marrow, He also testifies and seals in the supper not by presenting a vain and empty sign, but by manifesting the effectiveness of his spirit to fulfill what he promises. And truly, he offers and shows the reality there signified to all who sit at the spiritual banquet. Although it is received with benefit by believers alone who accept such great generosity with true faith, and gratefulness of heart. In this manner, um, and, and here he quotes the passage that we began with. You know, the bread that we break, is it not participation in the, blood of, uh, the body of Christ? The cup that we drink, is it not participation in the, the blood of Christ? He says, there is no reason for anyone to object that this is a figurative expression by which the name of the thing signified is given to the sign. I indeed admit that the breaking of the bread is a symbol. It is not the thing itself, but having admitted this, we shall nevertheless duly infer that by the showing of the symbol, the thing itself is also shown. For unless a man means to call God a deceiver, he would never dare assert that an empty symbol is set before him. Therefore, if the Lord truly represents the participation in his body through the breaking of bread, there ought not to be the least doubt 
that he truly presents and shows his body. And the godly ought by all means to, take, to keep this rule whenever they see the symbols. Here's the application for us. Whenever they, the godly, the saints, believers, whenever they see the symbols, why don't you look at them now? Whenever they see the symbols appointed by the Lord to think and be persuaded that the truth of the thing signified is surely present there. Can everybody see them? You hear heed Calvin's words here? Truly present there. And the godly ought by all means to keep this rule. Whenever they see the symbols appointed by the Lord, to think and be persuaded that the thing, the truth of the thing signified is surely present there. For why should the Lord put in your hand the symbol of his body except to assure you of a true participation in it? But if it is true that a visible sign is given us to seal the gift of the thing invisible, when we have received the symbol of the body, let us no less surely trust that the body itself is also given to us. Amen? Amen? What better way to introduce us to the table and to welcome us to the feast that the Lord has put before us? So friends, if you would stand with me, I invite you to now to come to the table. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have professed faith in Jesus Christ then you are welcome to come to the table. If you have not, or you doubt that you are truly in Christ, or you do not believe that you are truly in Christ, please do not come to the table. There is no judgment. There's no judgment or shame to those who would stay at their seats because this table is invited to feast at for those who are united with Christ. And so if that's you, you're invited to stay. No one will look at you. But brothers and sisters who profess faith in Jesus Christ as the alone mediator between God and man who atones for our sins on the cross, was raised for our justification, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, then we come to this table with joy and gratitude for what he offers us, and that is himself. Communing with himself. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you for these precious gifts of this, this bread and this fruit of the vine. And we thank you for the truth that we discovered that when we take this, that Jesus is truly present. We are communicating with our Savior. And we thank you for that. And so we pray with gratitude for these gracious gifts. We examine our hearts and our lives to whether we are in the faith and we come with joy to partake of our Savior. And it is in Christ's name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Brothers and sisters, come to the table.